Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics. And this features occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panelists of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, we're featuring commentary from Ray Dillon, an independent and an international relations professional and longtime friend of the program, Judith Sherwin, a Republican trial attorney based here in great Chicagoland, Illinois. My name is Chris Roebling. Bruce Dumont is taking the night off, as is well-deserved, and we're happy to be with you and talk about the events coming up this week and the events of last week. I do want to say Bruce has got a very special program for next week. We'll be talking about Woodward and Bernstein here in just a moment. Of course, the 50th anniversary of Watergate is on the minds of many. And Bruce has come up with an interview with Jonathan Morley, who has a new book out that is uh, really telling uh, what is considered to be many of the untold stories of the role of the CIA and the FBI in Watergate. Morley will be Bruce's guest for the full two hours next Sunday night. And given the fact that the House committee hearing that we'll be talking about in a minute is going to take place this Thursday evening, um, he will also be someone with a lot to say about contemporary politics. So uh, that's Jonathan Morley, his new book about the role of the CIA and the FBI in Watergate is going to be the single guest a week from tonight on Beyond the Beltway. And that, of course, will be hosted by Bruce Dumont himself. But right now it's yours truly, Chris Roebling, Judith Sherwin. Thank you for joining us. Good evening. Happy to be here. Great to have you. And our friend Ray Dillon, international relations professional. Ray in Washington, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. And uh, it, my first time. I was looking forward to it. We are we're issuing you a uh, get out of the Beltway free card, because <laughs> the the program is beyond the Beltway. But I have a sneaking suspicion that you are actually speaking to us from within the Beltway. Might that be true? Yeah, about a block and a half inside the Beltway. That's exactly right. Well, we've got we got about five and a half minutes here for a first break, and I I, I really want to ask you to something that I think ended up being sort of a top of the news, justifiably or not. But, you know, Bernstein and Woodward, and that, of course, is Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, uh, came out today with a piece in The Washington Post in which they said that President Trump uh, had achieved the distinction of becoming the first seditious U.S. president. Ray, uh, do you agree or disagree with Bernstein and Woodward on this point, and why? Give me a give me a minute and a half or so, so that we can then hear from Judith before the break. Well, uh, I think that that's a little bit. Shall, shall we say I think they're selling a product and going that far? Uh, I don't think we really have evidence that, at least so far, I haven't seen what the committee is saying that he actually engaged in sedition. I think 
some of his inflammatory language may have caused people to believe that they needed to commit sedition. Uh, and that may be too highly nuanced for people on either end of the spectrum. But as of right now, I, I don't think anyone has connected the dots to say that he actually planned and executed a seditious act on his own. Uh, like I said, uh, inciting people there's a fine line when you start talking about political speech as to how far people go. So uh, I would not at this point agree with them that he is a seditious president. Fair enough. Judith Sherwin. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I agree with Ray um, and even more strongly. Um, the president uh, was not engaged in sedition by any stretch of the imagination. I do believe that he was engaged in political speech relating to his view of what happened in the election and the view of many others. And, you know, we're a couple of years down the road right now, and we are, you know, every sentence about the election started out like this. President Trump is claiming without evidence, blah, 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 blah. Well, it turns out that there's actually a great deal of evidence that nobody want, wanted to look at then, that never really got in front of a court then. And there's a lot of stuff that's coming out now. But whether or not the president engaged in sedition, I would have to agree with, with Ray. This is just uh, Woodward and Bernstein trying to continue their grasp of uh, hoping to be relevant um, and coming out with something that uh, it's, it's just wrong. But we do have, uh, we, we do have a committee and uh, there's controversy about how the committee got established in the United States House of Representatives because the leadership of the House, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, for the first time in known history, denied the minority party the privilege of selecting the members that would serve. So she actually went around the leadership of the Republicans and picked two Republicans who already agree with her position, put them on the committee. So acknowledging the controversy behind the establishment of the committee, it is a public um, entity, okay, and it's meeting on Thursday night. Uh, do we think that this committee is is going to uh, get anywhere, Judith? We've got about two minutes. Well, you know, I think this committee is very similar, and we'll talk about it later, I suppose, to the jury in the Sussman trial. I mean, it's a, it's a stacked deck. She put people on that committee who are Trump haters, she put, obviously, the Democrats on the committee who start out being Trump haters. Um, very similar to having a jury that's stacked with, with Hillary donors and uh, and uh, the, the teammate of the judge's daughter. I mean, it, this is just not something um, that's going to give you any kind of a fair hearing. And I think that's what we're seeing with all the nonsense that's been going on with it. Ray Dillon, what does the committee teach us? I, well, you know, the old expression, the jury's out, I think is definitely applicable here. We have to see what they produce. If they, if they come up with the goods, so to speak, that may change the tenor, I, I think, of everybody. If they can actually come up with information that no one has seen yet, that may change some minds. If it is just empty rhetoric, I, I would agree with uh, Ms. Sherwin. But 
I'm going to keep, I, I would urge everybody, at least keep an open mind, irrespective of what people seem to think beforehand, why don't we wait until they actually put the information out and then react to that. I, I think trying to front load, uh, well, this is definitely going to be partisan or this is, you know, on the one hand, or this is going to be balanced. We don't know yet. You have to actually open the box and look inside to see what's there first. That and I don't is, think we're there yet. Okay, that's Ray Dillon joining us from Washington, D.C. this evening. Judith Sherwin's here in the studio with me. I'm Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont, and we're going to be back with you after these words. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. 
the drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Sunday evening means Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. My name's Chris Roebling, sitting in for Bruce, taking the night off. Ray Dillon, international relations professional, and Judith Sherwin, Chicago trial attorney, are on the program. Uh, Judith has been here many times, but I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit. Ray's first time is tonight, and so I want to, I want him to introduce himself as well. Judith, you go first. Okay, um, so... I, uh, my name is Judith Sherwin. I'm an attorney in Chicago. Uh, I practice in litigation and trial work. I also teach at Loyola University. I've taught in the areas of constitutional law and business ethics. And recently I've started working with something called the National Constitution Center where we do live classes on a more or less monthly basis with students talking about various issues under the Constitution. And that has been a very interesting, eye-opening situation. I've learned a lot, and I've learned a lot going on in the minds of young people from the ages of 10 up through college. And are they are they understanding the Constitution? You would be (laughs) surprised. You would be surprised. Yeah. Some of them really do have a pretty good idea, but they also have been inflicted by a lot of this social media stuff about, yeah. you know, people of color and they don't get the same rights as white people. And I, I've had a few of those kinds of discussions, too. Interesting. Ray, interesting. Ray Dillon, you, you had a career with the United States government and you're doing more things now. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your political journey. Well, um you are aware we were classmates, although we never interacted at Georgetown, where I was in the 70s, which is sort of interesting that we were talking about Wood and Bernstein, because you and I were in Washington when that was boiling over. Um, after that, uh, I did some graduate work at Columbia and uh, Oxford, and then uh, I, you know, my professional career included two decades in the Foreign Service where I managed to uh, get myself assigned to some of the hotter spots uh, where, you know, if we're talking about democracy, I was on the front lines in places like El Salvador and East Central Europe after the fall of communism and uh, got to see uh, what happens when people uh, disagree in, uh, in violent means and not at the ballot box. Well, that, that's something I want to pick up on. And, and we can leave the politics until a little bit later. But let, let's just get into this because of the uh, um, Woodward and Bernstein article, which I think we've dispensed with. It's the article. But I want to talk about the bigger question in society. I mean, there are a lot of people out there on the left who are talking about the potential loss of the democratic ideal here in the United States to the extent we're approaching the ideal. And I think we all know that you never actually get there. And there are a lot of people on the right who are concerned about uh, when the Democrats are in power, you see an ascendant central government that arrogates to itself authority that um, may not pass constitutional muster 
um, based on our history, based on customary interpretations, etc. So there's a lot of people are throwing around the terms of of authoritarianism and loss of democracy. So, Ray Dillon, you were in the democracy business on our behalf, on everybody's behalf as a member of the United States Department of State. How, how do you view <clears throat> recent developments here based on all of the democracy training you were doing in places like Central America and Eastern Europe after the fall of communism? Well, the first thing I would say, now, as you're asking the question, I just have this vivid memory of uh, poll watching in El Salvador during the Civil War. And watching, these weren't people being marched to the polling place and told who to vote for. They were people who really, truly wished to vote. And when you see a, a dump truck, like the, what we would see people you know, fill up with gravel for a road, people getting into these trucks to be transported to a polling place, you realize that there is something inherent in the human spirit that they want some form of representative government. So that, that's sort of a visceral image that comes to mind when I think about this. What, and this may get more into constitutional law, when I look at the United States, I think one thing that a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum of lost sight of is that there was however flawed our constitution is which is why there's an amendment procedure because the, the framers recognized it was an organic document my apologies to justice scalia in saying that um there was an inherent tension that was built into it where i think that the framers recognized there was no absolute way of having either a strong highly centralized government or a fragmented disproportionate government. If you realize that the Constitution was framed in the immediate aftermath of both the Revolutionary War and the failure of the, of the, um, uh, the Confederation, the Articles of Confederation, you realize that they deliberately, in my opinion, for what it's worth, had something which was imperfect and a balance. So there was always going to be a tension and going back and forth depending upon the circumstances. When we needed a strong government, we had it. When we needed a weak central government empowering the states, we had it. And I think that is built in, it's baked into the Constitution. That's why we have powers reserved. We have a federal system with powers reserved to the states and powers reserved to the federal government. And people have lost sight of that. Okay. There's always going to be a pendulum swing. Judith, uh, your view of the, the rampant use on both sides of both tyranny, authoritarianism, loss of democracy, et cetera. Well, you know, I, I think um, I think Ray is under something about the Constitution, but I think you you underestimate the extent to which the framers went to a great deal of trouble to allow for strong federal government so that they wouldn't have the chaos that they had from the Articles of Confederation, but to um, control the federal government and to leave the power in the states. Uh, that's what the Ninth Amendment is all about, the powers reserved to the states. Uh, the federal government is a government of delegated powers. The idea is that the strong federal government, if it gets too strong, will become tyrannical. 
And so they were they were very worried about that. And you see it all the way through the Constitution. And most particularly, the Constitution would never have been signed without the addition of the Bill of Rights, which came two years later. The, the idea of putting certain restrictions on the federal government um, was really necessary for the, um, the colonies to decide that they were going to buy into the Constitution. And the, if, you, if you look at the Bill of Rights, the prohibitions in there, which have now been incorporated, some of them, not all of them, against the state, um, they, are main, they are mainly meant to keep the federal government under control and to keep it from um, accessing to itself powers that were going to be tyrannical. So the other thing about it that, that really needs to be uh, looked at is the framers, if you read the Federalist Papers, um, were not all that, they, they were okay with democracy, but their democracy needed to be under control. And the, the uh, Bill of Rights was signed while another very important event in world history was going on, namely the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And they saw what was going on in the French Revolution. If you read Edmund Burke, this is the last thing they wanted here in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea here was, yes, democracy, but under certain rules and under certain restrictions. Yes, a strong federal government, but not one that could accrete power to itself to the detriment of the states. And we've been fighting that battle ever since. Folks uh, at home, our, our phone lines are open. Uh, the number is 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289. You can join in the conversation. We're talking about the Constitution. I also want to talk about authoritarianism, about claims that we're losing democracy. And, and we've got a couple of minutes. We've got a minute and a half left in this segment. Ray, um, do you think we're in imminent danger? And when I say imminent danger, you know, these things happen very slowly at first and then they happen very quickly. Um, do you think that there is imminent danger of the loss of our, our constitutional framework um, these days because of, and I, I don't mean to cheapen the allegation, but because of parents sounding off at school boards or, or what have you, or people owning guns legally? I am concerned that we make certain interpretations of the Constitution and our, and our system of government to totems, meaning that these are absolutes and that it's almost a religious uh, finding that it, there's only one way to interpret it and it is my way, irrespective of where you sit on the political spectrum. I, and that's what I was talking about. I, I guess I disagree with Ms. Sherwin to a certain extent, but uh, maybe not. I think there's probably more common ground here than at first blush. Yep. But I really think that there's always going to be a tension between okay. centralized and state governments. Judith, uh, what, what's your view of the possible? And we've only got 10, 15 seconds. Go ahead. Well, and we'll come I'm, back. I, yeah, OK, that's Don't good. I mean, look, we, we, we have reached the state in this country where we can't talk to each other. And, and that is, that's not a constitutional issue. That's a cultural issue. We need to get through that. 
I mean, if more people like Ray, who's on the if we could talk to each other, we'd be in a lot better shape. And that's what Bruce Dumont has us doing this Sunday night and every Sunday night beyond the Beltway. It's Chris Robling sitting in for Bruce, and we'll be back after these words. Thank you. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Sunday evening always means Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont, except tonight it's Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce. Our guests are Ray Dillon and Judith Sherwin. The program tonight is coming to you from our home base, AM 560 WIND radio in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. And I mean beautiful. 
Uh, Ray, you, you've never been probably to Illinois at all, but uh, Elk Grove Village actually has a grove right across this big street here that is filled with elk. I mean, they really, oh, they they really, really deliver, you know? <laughs> I mean, there are never all kinds of horned animals over there. I've never know. seen any, but okay. Maybe, probably a Republican committeeman, too. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> having said all that, okay, so let's get back for a quick second. I, I, let, let's talk a little bit about politics. We've got folks in, in D.C., and there are Democrats in D.C. who say, you know, gun ownership is is a problem and and there is a with these tragic awful horrible um, mass shootings and killings there is a new impetus to gun control legislation at the federal level and the democrat controlled house is you know picking up the gauntlet and uh there's a Senate with a majority of Democrats by one vote. And then there's a White House with Joe Biden. Now, all of these institutions have said at one point or another that they think more restrictions on gun ownership is is a good idea. Over against that, we've got the, this this tragic, I mean, heartbreaking and somewhat, you know, uh, aggravating uh, story coming out of Texas about I, I hate to use the word, but the incompetence or the cowardice of the local police. Uh, plus, today, I guess, was the first time we heard from the mom who ran into the school in Uvalde, Texas. And despite the cops trying to stop her, got into the school, helped one class get out and then actually rescued her other child. So both of her children got out of the school and she was harassed by the police. OK. So uh, Uvalde was a terrible, terrible tragedy and an awful event. And the police did not help the way we would have hoped that they would do so. And maybe many lives would have been saved if they had charged right in to stop the gunman. Okay. With that as a background, which I think is neutral and fair to all sides, um, Ray, is it time for more restrictions? Is there any evidence that you know of that indicates legal gun ownership is in fact the problem here, or that there are failures both in the administration of the laws that we already have and in certain law enforcement situations, tragically like Uvalde, also somewhat like the situation in Florida several years ago. I think it's all of the above, quite frankly. You and I have had some spirited discussions in other fora about this. Um, and full disclosure, my spouse is a elementary school teacher. And I, it is disturbing to me on a personal level that it's one thing to say your spouse is a um, you know, police officer or a soldier and may not come home at night. But the thought that that would also apply to a teacher, I find disquiet. So like I said, that's, that's a very personal thing on my part. I, don't th- I think that even Ronald Reagan in the 70s talked about having some form of gun control and or at least some sort of regulation. I mean, right, the word regulation appears in the Second Amendment. So it, regulation of and by itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It should be not a binary choice between regulation or no regulation. I think it's, again, that tension in finding what is a reasonable 
positions that say, where legitimate gun ownership is protected, but weapons that can be used for things like Navalny somehow are, there's a cap on it. And it, I think it's ridiculous to say that there is no balance point, that it is either unrestricted or completely restricted. I, I find both ends are intellectually wanting is probably the best way for me to put it. And, you know, the Wild West is not acceptable. I don't think anybody, certainly not to, uh, you know, legal gun owners. I don't think they want that either. Ray, we may have lost your camera. Uh, Judith. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I mean, well, first of all, you know, whenever this debate breaks out, and, and I used to be on that side of the debate many years ago, because I'm sort of a fallen away Democrat, and, and um, uh, now, you know, part of the Republican Party, I guess, or conservative anyway. I used to be on that side of the argument, but the truth is that there are many gun laws in this country, and the... The, the man who shot up that school in Uvalde passed a background check. I don't know if you've ever tried to actually buy a gun in the United States or ship a gun to someone in the United States. It is not an easy process. And, and I'm sure that he had to go through it. There's not been any allegation that he didn't. He bought that gun legally. So the question is, what is the problem? What are we missing here? And we are missing something that needs to be taken care of in a slightly different way. The red flag laws uh, that keep being proposed have some issues, uh, constitutional issues. I don't know if anybody can write one that's ever actually going to pass constitutional muster. Um, but there, there certainly are some people who should not have guns. I don't know whether the, the age limit needs to be raised. Maybe it does. Um, but certainly... There are plenty of laws on the books. None of the laws that we have on the books right now would have prevented this from happening. He didn't buy this privately. He bought this from a gun dealer, a federally licensed gun dealer. Now, maybe the gun dealer should have said, you know what, why is this kid buying two AR-15s and a, and a pistol all one time? That may be something that the gun dealer should have noticed. But... The, the issue about gun control, law-abiding people should not be impacted by criminals who buy guns and kill people, all right? Mm -hmm. We need to stop criminals from getting guns. We've got some callers on the line. We mentioned our, our phone line is 1-800-723-8289, one 8289 We'd love to hear from you. Craig is in Western Pennsylvania. Craig, your, uh, could we have your bottom line point, please, about the Constitution and any point you want to make about guns and uh, the Second Amendment? Uh, do you mean Frank? Yes. Do you I mean Frank I, from Western I guess Pennsylvania? I mean Frank. Sorry, we, we got that. We've yes, got so I, many people calling in, Frank. Thank you. That's okay. No, that's, that's uh, very good. I, I, I love the show. And I appreciate both speakers being on and uh, appreciate the young lady saying, you know, one bottom line point is the fact that if we could just talk to each other through these issues, we might be able to resolve them. And, and uh, the civility issue is, I think the second barrier is it would be nice if people actually read the Constitution and understood what it has to say 
read the Federalist Papers, did some background research, and and uh, understood the point of view of what the framers were saying. With regard to the Second Amendment and, and the militia uh, and the right to bear arms, you know, again, there was a healthy distrust of government. And that's why that amendment was created. And the amendment process exists. If there's a consensus in this country to amend the Constitution, to modify uh, gun ownership, if there's a, if there's a logical uh, discussion that can be had, then I'm all for that. That's why there isn't a, a men, amendment process. But to say, as the young lady just said, uh, that you can just put up all kinds of regulation and red flag laws and this law and that law, what about the Constitution? The Constitution has to be held in esteem here and has to be the lead document on this. And I think reasonable people can come to solutions through discussion and through understanding and not by just proposing additional regulation, which would have not have prevented, sad to say, these murders. All right. Cray, uh, I'm sorry, Frank, Frank <laughs> from Western Pennsylvania, thank you very much for liking the program and, and tuning in and calling in. Great to have you on. Je I think Jeannie is in Austin, Texas, and she's got something to say about the Constitution as well. Jeannie, go ahead. Um, well, you know, I personally think that every time the caller just said the framers, you know, everyone needs to respect the Constitution and what the framers were saying. Well, let me tell you something. First of all, these were men who wrote this how many years ago? Did you ever think that they were wrong? Why? Why? You know, thank the screener. He's a good at what he does. Cause he helped me put it in a nutshell. Why is it that we can't keep up with modern times with this Constitution? And he said something about the amendment, you know, having amendments. Well, when's the last time those happened? How hard is it to do those? And I just feel, you know, why, first of all, was AR-57 ever sold when that was meant for war? Um, I actually went to the memorial a couple of days ago just to go. I live in Austin, Texas, and I felt compelled to go. And um, I'm not really sure what's happening over there because I saw the school. It's one thing to see it on television. It's one thing to go see it in person. I went to the school and the memorial downtown. The school was very, how do you say it, flimsy. Uh -huh. I mean, I don't see any modern anything. So I'm like, where did that money go to fortify all that? And there's a scandal going on, okay? Governor okay. Abbott knows about it, and, and they're not holding this incident report, you know, commander responsible, and no one's saying anything. This is shameful. Je shameful. Jeannie, Jeannie anyway, thank you very much. Thank you for letting me speak. You bet, you bet. Thank you for listening. Good to have you on the program, and uh, dial in another time soon. Um, more to talk about on this with, with Ray Dillon, whose actual metier is international relations. We're going to have to get to that a little bit. Uh, and Judith Sherwin, a longtime participant in the program. I'm Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont. We'll be back after these words. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry, we're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. 
Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Beyond the Beltway, I'm Chris Roebling, sitting in for Bruce Dumont, Judith Sherwin, Chicago trial lawyer is here. Ray Dillon, international relations professional. Ray, I want to ask you to stay for another hour. And I realize it's Sunday evening. You might not be able to, but I hope that you can. Is that all right? Yeah. All right, good. Um, sure. But in the it, it, here, we've, we've only got about six and a half minutes in this segment. But I want you to tell us something. You were in Eastern Europe. You were doing a lot of the democracy training. I did some of that with the International Republican Institute in Russia, as you mm-hmm. may recall. But... Um, Tell us how things went so far wrong in Russia that Putin was able to sort of sneak in there post Yeltsin, grab on to everything and and now wreaking havoc in Eastern Europe and, and, and ending lives and sending missiles into Kiev and all of the horrible things that he, he is doing. Tell us how Putin resulted from what happened after the uh, after Yeltsin? Well, I think there are a couple of things that have to be looked at here. One is that there were centuries 
of Russian culture backing that up, uh, a highly centralized imperial system. And there was no smooth transition from that when the wall came down. It went from a basically an empire along the lines of, say, the Habsburgs, and overnight it fell apart. And there was nothing to prop up people socially or economically. And a lot of people were pretty desperate at that point. And a strong man, you know, what they say in Latin America, man on a white horse. And you've seen some of the images of, of Vladimir Putin on the horse. Uh, literally, I'm going to come to save the day. You know, I'm coming over the mountain and I'm going to fix this problem. And that appealed to a lot of people. You know, if you can't put food on the table, um, you're going to go for it. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that somebody, a bad actor, took advantage of that and now is trying to reconstitute the old empire where people say, you know, they don't think about the bad things under the old Soviet empire. They just think about how, you know, they have this mythological view of the grand old past. And that's how he's managed to get this thing launched. But I think there are a lot of tensions inside his government and inside his country right now. Some of the, this is all open source, by the way, and this is my opinion. There's nothing classified or, sure. and I'm not speaking on behalf of the State Department, but I think there are a lot of fractures there. Right. And I think, and I think the fact that he didn't do this in a cakewalk, like he promised everybody, is going to tell on them. It's not, it's not, it's not helping him. <clears throat> Judith Sherwin, uh, is the United States appropriately responding to this crisis and with respect to our grand national strategy, such as we have one in 2022? Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to see the grand national strategy that we have in 2022. I mean, it's, it's certainly not evident to me. And, you know, I don't have Ray's experience in the State Department, but, um, you know, I, uh, based on everything I've ever read, I think he's absolutely right about what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. There was a power vacuum. Whenever there's a power vacuum, bad things happen. And I think that's very similar to what's going on here right now is with respect to our foreign policy. I, I really believe that I don't know why or how, but I really believe that Mr. Putin would not be doing what he is doing today if President Trump were still in the White House. Um, I think that, I mean, when I woke up, I don't know, back in February, one of the first things I heard after the war started was the, the president of Russia threatening us with nuclear weapons. I haven't heard that since I was in high school, and I never heard language like that, even from Khrushchev. Ray, Ray uh Tell us. Well, Khrushchev said he would bury us, but um, well, I understand. But uh, Ray, let I me, think I, I, I want to ask you: are, I, I just, is the United States the way I, is, is the United States leading right now in a way that tends to strengthen our alliances, so that we will hopefully we whoever we are in this case NATO plus Ukraine plus. Um, uh, other well-wishers around the world will emerge more influential after this? I don't have a crystal ball, but I'll tell you this. It was inconceivable at the end of January that Sweden and Finland would join NATO. Right. The word Finland is usually referred to. The fact that 
they were willing to go into the into the alliance, I think is very telling. I think the reaction of Switzerland being willing to join international economic sanctions is very telling. Mm -hmm. Having been in the region, you speak to the Swiss, they don't want to hear about anything for them to do that. But I, I think if to answer the question as to whether or not the United States itself is doing anything appropriate, I would refer you to pre-World War II, 1940s, where the United States had a very fine line to, to go to. We were basically at war with Nazi Germany, but we hadn't had a formal declaration. We had American naval vessels firing on U-boats. And, and, and we were shipping weapons to Great Britain to keep them in the war. I think our circumstances now are analogous to that. The problem is, we there's one other line we can't cross, and it's because of the nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what is drawing our hand. If we were bellicose about this, a trapped rats tend to start fighting people. And right. I think in this case, other people would, would, would suffer from it. Right. I think, I think no matter who was president, they would be in a very bad situation now. I think we have incrementally supported them with weaponry, economic sanctions, and the expansion of a strengthened NATO. And that's this is not the optimal way to do it, take my word for it. But I think that on balance, this is the least bad, bad path we could go on that. And uh, that is Ray Dillon, an international relations professional, as you can tell from the erudition of his comments. Judith Sherwin, lacking no erudition on her part, has helped us with the Constitution in this first hour of Beyond the Beltway for Bruce Dumont this evening. My name is Chris Roebling. I'm glad you're joining us. We've got a couple of guys on the line. We want to get to them after the top of the hour. We will be back after these words. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, <laughs> tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, it is Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont, except tonight, no Bruce Dumont. He's taking a deserved night off. My name is Chris Roebling. I've been around on this show for some years, and I'm sitting in tonight for our friend Bruce. And to that circle of friendship, we welcome for the first time Ray Dillon, international relations professional down in Washington, D.C., and Judith Sherwin, well-known to the listeners of this program, uh, a uh, attorney and trial attorney here in Chicago and a Republican. Ray, I, I think it is fair to say that you once were a Republican and you sort of drifted away. I was raised a Democrat and drifted That's away. And Judith, uh, you were raised a Democrat. Absolutely. So I want to hear from you two about your personal journey. But before we get to that, our friend Terry in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been on the line through that break. And he wants to add a, a key point on the gun control question and topic that we were discussing last hour. Terry, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for listening and thanks for dialing in. What's your point about gun control and gun ownership? Well, I have more of a question I hope you can clarify. They talk about at the age when someone can purchase a gun. Is that the same as me being the age when you could possess the gun? Because every 15-year-old around me has a long arm. But I doubt that they went out and bought it, you know. You know, it was given to them. So does that mean they wouldn't be able to possess one? Could someone buy one and give it to a minor Boy, I'm, legally? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know the code on that, uh, Judith. <laughs> I, you know, I have no idea. Private. And it may sound strange, maybe sitting in Chicago, but like I said, anyone with a two-parent family around me probably has gotten a gun for his birthday around 14 or 15-year-old. I am old enough. I, Ray and I went to college uh, in Washington, D.C., and there were kids who had come to where we were at school from New York. Uh, Ray earlier in, mentioned the name Antonin Scalia. And Justice Scalia went mm -hmm. to a place called Xavier, 
a Jesuit prep school, day prep school in New York City, which was also a military school, had a big mm -hmm. ROTC activity. And uh, kids in our mm -hmm. year at Georgetown would have, because of the ROTC element at Xavier, traveled to and from school on a daily basis and using the subway usually, and, and many of them would be carrying rifles. Right. Uh, they would be carrying rifles and rounds of ammunition because they needed to bring the rounds of ammunition for the target practice that was going to happen as part of the ROTC program after school. And Xavier was only one of scores and scores of high school that had that kind of involvement. Public with high guns. schools had it too. I mean, I remember I, I, I actually dated a guy who was in the ROTC and they had rifle practice. Right. They had it frequently and, and yeah. uh, it was part of the curriculum. I mean, the, so, so Terry, I apologize. We're going to have I, to I, check I, the, the Indiana statutes on that one. But uh, Ray, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably situational, and probably depends on the state because we don't have a national, really a uniform national set of statutes on this. And I also think it also depends on when you're talking about it. Certainly. When I was growing up, people were far more concerned about handguns, Saturday night specials, than they were about long guns. And there were the there simply wasn't the availability of you know semi-automatic weapons when we were growing up. So circumstances have changed over time. Very, and very. I think no, I, that's I'll true. Defer to the attorney on this one, but I would think that the implicit assumption is that the parents, you know, local parentis or whatever. You know, it's coverture for the child. It's really the parent who bears all the responsibility for the weapons. They're not just giving it to the kids, so to speak. But again, I'll defer to the attorneys. Yeah, that. well, I mean, I, I know that. I, I want to switch. I want to go to something you were mentioning on a break. Um, I, I want to remind listeners that our lines are open 1-800-723-8289. Probably take some more calls a little later in the hour. But if they want to call in, if they hear something, important to them and they want to say something important to them, uh, it's 1-800-723-8289. Judith, you were talking about the uh, hardening right. of schools. Right. I think I think that you might want to make that point. And, and Ray, you might want to react from the standpoint of how much money has been sent from Washington to school districts or, or to states with the final destination intended to be school districts on, on hardening. Right. So on the question of hardening, I mean, first of all, you don't see people coming into the inner city public schools and shooting up the schools. There's a reason for that. You can't get into them. Um, and, I, you know, I have some experience of this, having spent a lot of time in Israel. Uh, good luck walking into a school in Israel. There is a perimeter around the school. Um, there's all kinds of security to get in. Uh, you have to be on a special list. You know, there's buzzers, there's locked doors, there's one point of entry. There's a very simple reason for that. And I'm worried about people committing mass shootings. They have they have terror attacks. Well, they don't have them anymore at schools because of that. So, you know, there are things that can be done to to harden the schools, make them a hard target. That lady who called in and was so upset about what she said was the flimsy nature of the school. The school, unfortunately, can't be flimsy. 
we live in a time where we maybe don't like that, but, you know, I don't like the idea that my, my child would have had to go to a school that had an armed guard, but I actually did have a child who went to a school where there was an armed guard, and it happened in the 1980s after a lady by the name of Lori Dan went into a school in Winnetka and shot a bunch of people and killed a little boy. And the next day, the school that my son was going to had an armed guard and at one point of entry, and it has been that way ever since. And that was 30 years ago. Ray, you know, we've passed, I don't know how many <laughs> measures have passed Congress for um, school uh, bricks and mortar. And of course, hardening schools mm -hmm. is on everybody's mind. What, what does that tell us just in general? I mean, I, I guess you can always say, well, this is a one-off. It's a failure of the locals. What, what's your view? Well, I, I look at it this way. You know, we should be spending money on teaching people, not, not turning our schools into fortresses. I mean, that's my opinion for whatever it's worth. If the problem is that an individual can get their hands on a high-powered weapon, and shoot up a school, and the solution is don't look at what the people are doing and see if there's a way to ameliorate that issue in a constitutional way. But the only other answer is to turn our schools into armed camps. With you know, I mean, is that conducive to learning? Let me think this through. I mean, I I appreciate the circumstances in Israel because they've been in a constant state of war since 1947. But do you really? Is that where we want to go here? Do we really want to get to a set of circumstances where, you know, every industry school is now going to be replicated in every school district across the United States? Well, and I we think, you know, I think, you know, you, I, I don't want to interrupt we're, you. Wait, but... we're going we're gonna to have to t get that point after the break. Okay, sorry. And we will get that point after the break, but we can't get it before the break. Okay, <laughs> so we'll come back after, okay. after the break. Chris Roebling and for Bruce Dumont, back after these words. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. 
Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Sunday evening means Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. Good to have you aboard listening. Thank you. Uh, folks have been calling in. I've got one right now. Curtis in Austin, Texas. We've been talking about guns, so let's take this one, and we'll do more calls later in the hour. Curtis, uh, Austin, Texas, your bottom line point for the panel of Ray Dillon and Judith Sherwin. Hey, boss, what I'm what I'm saying is uh, changing the age to buy a long gun has a lot more implications than just changing the age of one thing. Because we're going to say 18-year-olds aren't old enough to do to buy a long gun. They're not old enough to go to college. They're not old enough to be drafted into the military or join the military without consent. They can't sign contracts. They can't even get married. They can't smoke cigarettes. I mean, all kinds of things that if they're too, if they're too immature to buy a long gun, they're immature to do a whole list of things that have to be addressed, not just one little thing. Right. And all, at least three of us at this table remember the discussion over 18 to vote because at 18, folks were able to be drafted and sent off to fight for America and hopefully not die in Vietnam, but many of them did. Yeah. Uh, 50,000. So, um, so, so your, your point is that as a culture, we don't have a clear sense of what goes or doesn't go at 18. At 18. Right. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to make the, the discussion and have the argument, then we should have the argument about all things that 18 year olds are allowed to do, not just one thing that they're allowed. Because if they, if, they, if they can't show good common sense with that, they can't show good common sense with anything else that can affect their life. I so somebody has to make their decision for them. Understood, and that doesn't sound like the society we're living in. Uh, Curtis, down in, uh, San, in uh, Austin, Texas, thank you very much for calling in. Appreciate it. Um, now, okay, let's, I, I want to get back to the political, the, kind of the bigger political situation that we're facing here. Um, which is represented this week by, you know, you've got you've got folks who supported Trump who think that January 6th 
Many of them, I, for instance, I myself was on the, on the radio while it was happening, denouncing what was going on. Uh, I was on another a channel, WBEZ in Chicago. Um, while it was on the TV screen, they called and a bunch of us were on, three or four of us were on. And uh, you could see that what was being done in the Capitol was not what should be done in the Capitol. And there was something terribly wrong, terribly amiss. Okay. Um, uh, so there, there are folks who view it as something that was wrong, but not, for lack of a better term, actionable, okay, legally actionable. Um, others, in this case, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and uh, uh, Adam Kinzinger, a Republican congressman from Illinois, and Lynn Cheney, Republican congresswoman from Wyoming, think, and, and others in the House, think that what was going on was part of a grand conspiracy, et cetera. Okay. We've already had the conversation about, you know, what's the evidence and the evidence isn't all in and things like that. So, I, But I want to get to the deeper societal disconnection between the sides, that, that we are coming to places like this. How is it that we're not hearing each other enough to prevent polarization? If polarization is a movement to the, to the edges, I'm trying to get this right in my camera here, to the edges, what is it that is causing us to go to the edges of the conversation and not find a place to coalesce in the middle of that conversation? Who wants to? Judith, you want to go first? Yeah, I, you know, I think we're terribly disconnected. And, and uh, we live with an illusion of the fact that we're not disconnected, and that's what this social media, which should be called anti-social media, okay, is is doing to us. We get online, and, you know, we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it, too. We get online, we read something we don't like, you know, and the thought of maybe just leave it alone, don't engage with it, you know. Nope, can't do that. Not only do we not not engage with it, we engage with it in an absolutely obnoxious way. Everybody does it. And all that does is drive everybody further and further apart. I mean, if you get Twitter is an absolute cesspool. All of them are. You know, when I go on Facebook these days, um, I go on as my cat. And I spend my time <laughs> looking at sites dealing with pussycats, okay? Yeah. And when people you know, throw their political opinions out there, the the administrators just throw them right off the, the group. Yeah. Goodbye, you're gone. I mean, it's it's terrible. People can't talk to each other. I mean, I'm actually very much enjoying the fact Ray and I don't agree on everything, but I can talk to him. I can I can express an opinion with him and I don't feel like what he's saying when he answers me is you're a moron and everything you say is terrible and you're just you're just in cahoots with that seditious Donald Trump. Yeah. That's what you get. So we can't have that. We've got to stop that. Ray, your view. Well, exactly the same. Uh, I, I really do believe that there's a lot more middle ground that people are willing to accept. But for, I mean, again, you've got to be kind of careful not to start pointing your keys and fingers at people because that will get you right into the same trap. But I think once the word compromise became a dirty term 
things began to go south. And then when it became, if you have this opinion, not only are you wrong, you are somehow an evil person for even daring to have that thought. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the problem. I, I like that like you and I have been in that morass known as Facebook and we've exchanged things and I like to think, maybe I'm wrong, that at least we were civil. We disagreed. You know, we presented our arguments, hopefully backed up with real facts, not fake facts. And even if we didn't convince each other, at least at the end of the day, we essentially had respect for each other and we at least understood why the other person came to a different conclusion with the same set of facts and the same kinds of arguments. I like to think that. Maybe I'm wrong. But for some reason, we've lost that ability. Well, one of the... yeah, Everything is personal. Right. One of of the things that is is extremely annoying, I could get into a conversation with, with somebody on Facebook with whom I have differing opinion, and we have a civil discussion... And all of a sudden, out of left field somewhere, somebody else who happens to be on the same thread throws a bomb into the middle of the conversation. And the next thing you know, everybody's yelling at everybody else. That's yeah. that's the social media thing. And it is absolutely detrimental to our culture. It is detrimental to society on every level. And, and I don't know what we do about that genie. How do we put it back in the bottle? I really don't. Okay, so I, I self-edited before when you were asking me about Russia because one of the examples I could have given was to talk about the rise of Nazi Germany after World War II, but there's something in social media called Godwin's Law, which says that every discussion winds up with a Hitler reference at the end of the right, day. Right. So I deliberately avoided that so that we, and here I am saying it, so we didn't go down that path. No, but, but then it's a good idea. It, it's a good idea because there's, there's that's no path to go down, and it's usually said by somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about either. So not in your case, but it's it's uh, <laughs> no. I mean, you get you get this kind of bomb throwing all the time. You can't have a conversation with anybody, and that that is really the problem. So yeah, I was weird with the sense that an argument was not a shouting match; it was a rational discussion. You know, of I, I, here's my premise. Here's the my supporting information. Here's my analysis. Here's my conclusion. That to me was an argument. Right. An argument wasn't that you're a commie kinko or you're a fascist running dog. That, right. that to me is so alien that I can't, I can't, I can't internalize. Yeah, but that's the only thing you get on social media, and I, I don't know how we stop it. I, I don't know what's going on in Austin. I, I think everybody down there is listening to Beyond the Beltway because now John has called I got it. In. I'm sorry. John, You're John welcome. In, hello, hello, John. John in Austin, Texas. I think you've got a quick comment for Judith Sherwin and Ray Dillon. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I um, just wanted to say that I prefer dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery. I served in the military, and one thing about it is we were all different, but we were all connected on the sense of freedom. And when politics gets involved in that, it really takes it out. And what I'm saying is, is is they take it out of the Republic square where they try to have this broad straight, broad uh, stroke over everything rather than just letting things happen in the areas that they're happening. 
I've lived all over this country, and it's a great country. There's all kinds of variations, just like you, if you go to Europe. And it, when Washington gets involved, it really takes away from the uniqueness of what makes America. You're sounding like Alexis de Tocqueville. I just, you know, and I and I think anybody who does is probably on a good track, uh, you know, or or uh, his friend Beaumont. Uh, so so we appreciate your calling in, John of Austin, Texas. Thank you for listening. Thanks for calling. Uh, good to have you on the program. Uh, we're we're running out of time in this segment. So when we come back, I think we should get back to a little bit more of you know, the actual politics that are going on, maybe with a little bit more on international stuff, because we do have Ray here and we don't want to lose that expertise in this conversation. But until then, um, I, uh, I thank the, the callers who have called in and uh, I thank all of you who are listening. And let's not forget, Bruce Dumont is going to be back next week with a very serious conversation for the entire two hours with uh, a, a Watergate author, Jonathan Morley, who is going to be talking about the actual story of what the CIA and FBI did during Watergate. And it couldn't be more topical because, of course, on Thursday night we'll be hearing about uh, the January 6th committee and whatever evidence uh, or testimony it wants to bring into the public record. Right now, it's Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont, and uh, we look forward to seeing you after these words. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. 
She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Sunday evening. Sunday evening, <coughs> and Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce DeMont on Beyond the Beltway. All right, so, so we've got this question, Ray. We, we've talked about Europe. We've talked about your work in Eastern Europe after the fall of the wall. You also were in Central America. But let's just shift now uh, over to Asia where we've got, you know, this, this very significant challenge from China. And we have the, I, I, I'm going to use the word irritant, but that is not to in any way diminish the potential significance of uh, North Korea and what it could do, okay? So we, we've had North Korean policy, which I'm not sure has been the greatest of successes of the, you know, sort of either U.S. foreign policy or allied foreign policy, for lack of a better term, um, for years since, since the Korean War. And... Um, China has very clearly been on a path of expanding its geostrategic significance well beyond commercial affairs into its ability to influence other nations to its will. Um, and, and I just, you know, we see it even this week with the testing of, of you know, weaponry and delivery systems, et cetera. So, um, I want to ask you, I want to take your temperature here in June of 2022 on China and uh, how well we're doing and what else we need to be doing. I'm, I'm bemused that after all these decades, we're back to Kumoy and Matsu in the Taiwan Straits. Right, right. Um, <laughs> You know, and if you're not I'm old sure enough to remember Kamoy and Matsu, scratching their heads like, what is he talking about? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you remember growing up that those were flashpoints in the Taiwan Strait. The whole 1960 um, election turned on Kimoy and Matsu, if you remember any exactly. of the I think I think the Chinese are very aggressive in the Pacific Basin. They're trying to have inroads into a lot of the smaller island states there. Uh, I recommend reading some articles about their attempts to uh, leverage a new base in the Solomon Islands of Guadalcanal uh, fame. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if they're going to overextend themselves, quite frankly. Uh, I don't know if they're, they're trying power projection into the region and I don't think they're really going to get that far, quite frankly. I think the uh, Australians' decision to go nuclear in their submarine forces is very telling. I think the uh, 
the fact that the Brits are now using their their new fleets, their new Elizabeth uh, class um, aircraft carriers deployed into the region as well. I think there's a lot of very low key uh, political military operations going on. The tough nut to crack is going to be in the economic sphere, quite frankly. Uh, also, China, which I haven't heard this mentioned in a long time, is sitting on a demographic uh, time bomb as a result of their Maoist one China, uh, one child policy. Right. That's that is a chicken that is going to come to roost because you're going to have a lot of men of marrying age without mates because of traditional Chinese right. culture, which if you're going to have a child, it has to be a boy. And I think that is that is something which I, I'm looking at, I'm fascinated by, and I would like to see how that's going to play out. But I, I don't, I, I, and this may sound heretical, I'm not as concerned about North Korea as I am about China. Beijing, to me, seems to be the bigger power player. Uh, I think eventually Kim's regime is going to collapse. It, it just doesn't make any sense politically, economically, or anything else. I think that they have a lot of long-term resentments going back to the Meiji Restoration. I don't want to start having people's eyes glaze over, but, uh, you know, it, uh, in the early 1800s and early 1900s, Japanese turned it into a colony and really exploited it. And people don't know a whole lot about that. So they're they don't like the Japanese. It's probably a nice quick way to put that. But what they've done, their reaction is to put themselves in a box, the, the ultimate hermit kingdom. Right, right. Uh, Judas, um, your view of, of race points, your view of China. Well, I, you know, when I, I have had very little experience in China, but I did take one visit there many years ago. I was in Hong Kong, and we were able to get a visa to go over, you know, into, into mainland China. And China's a very scary place. I remember going to a museum and looking at their space program, and I was there with my son, who was who's uh, an engineer, looking at this stuff, and he was in a rocket science program at that point, and I said, you know, these people scare me because they are so, they are so driven, they are so one-minded. I mean, they took us to a, a kindergarten. I've never seen kindergarten children behave like this. I mean, it was remarkable to me, and... And um, so China is very scary. As far as North Korea is concerned, um, they're pretty scary, too, with the bomb, uh, with, with their <laughs> nuclear power. Um, and, um, and, and it seemed to be pretty quiet for a while. Uh, now not so quiet. I'm not exactly sure I know what that's all about. That probably is because... This is Kim trying to keep his own people in line as opposed to keeping us in line. But, um, you know, it's a black box to most Americans, and in many ways it's a black box to me uh, when I look at it. But China is very scary to me. So, all right. <clears throat> because we've mentioned North Korea. Hey, hey, Go ahead. I'll just say one, one question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk on your question. I apologize. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to make an observation. When I was in China, the last time I was in China, which was a couple of years ago, we went to Chongqing, or Chongqing is what Americans know it as. Yes. And people there, the ordinary people, saw we were Americans, and they started pointing at the river and saying, there used to be an air base there for the flying tigers, 
and we want what the United States did for us. And these are people two and three generations removed from World War II, and it's still part of the local war and the local culture. Right. So you can't look, you can't look at China just as a monolith. You can't look at it just in terms of Xi and the ruling party. There's a lot more going on there. And uh, you know, when I was in Shanghai and a few other places, people as individuals loved Americans and they loved American culture. So there's right. there's that dualism there as well. It's not just well marching <clears throat> off and you know, capitalist what? pigs who are gonna climb you under our heels attitude with everybody. Right. Well let's let's go over um, since we've mentioned North Korea and its possession of nuclear weaponry, let's go over to Iran for a quick second, because there the state, which is basically a bunch of, in my humble opinion, corrupt mullahs and the uh, Revolutionary Guard that protects them and that is in on the slicing up of the uh, profit pie, so to speak, um, their, their intent, I, they, they appear to be intent, not just on controlling their population, many of whom love the United States, uh, no question about that, but they're, they're in, they seem intent on uh, breaking out of every conceivable uh, uh, norm of international behavior to give themselves nuclear weaponry. And they keep talking about wiping parts of Israel off the map or all of Israel oh. off the map. Ray, are, do you, we are, we've entered a position now where our administration appears to be saying they're not ready to re-engage uh, on the current terms of the, uh, the joint agreement. Uh, what's, what is next in U.S. What is, what is Iran up to next? Our relationship with Iran is very complex. I mean, that, that, that's the, the official line, but it's also actually historically and factually true. Um, I think when you hear the saber rattling about Israel, I think there is certainly a, a faction in the country that would wish to destroy the state of Israel. There's no question about that. But I also think that it's also their, their go-to when they have domestic problems, be it economic or social. It, you have to look, again, it's a question of demographics. Most Iranians were born after the revolution. Right. To them, it's, it's history. It's, it's like... I mean, it sounds strange, but it would be like going to an American and say, we should hate Britain. You know, it's right. for two centuries. And, and most people in the street, they don't buy that. But the people in power do. I do think there was a missed opportunity to contain Iran's nuclear ambitions. I think that the, the four plus two uh, negotiations had some semblance of success, but that moment has passed. Whether we're going to go back to another position like that, the Iranians, when it comes, unfortunately, American administrations have a very short attention span. The Iranians do not. They, they, their attention span is two, two or three millennia. They're going to remember every slight, every, every agreement we back down of, and it's going to take a long time to get anything out of them. Whether or not they have the ability, I don't know. I think they're more, quite frankly, I think they're more focused on the Gulf right now than they are on the Levant. Right. I haven't heard anything out of Lebanon about Lebanese Hezbollah in a long time. 
And that, that to me is indicative of the, the near abroad is more important to them than Israel. Now, Judith, a lot there, and you have been to Israel many times, and I know that you want to make a comment about that. But again, we've got to go after the break because right now we're running up to the break. And so I want to remind everybody that are listening to Beyond the Beltway that Bruce Dumont's taking the night off. I'm Chris Roebling sitting in. Ray Dillon, international relations professional, uh, joins us tonight for his first, his maiden voyage on the program. And Judith Sherwin, longtime friend of the program, is here with me to help me out. And uh, we really appreciate Fritz Goldman in the control room and all of you at home listening. And we look forward to seeing you again after these words. song again for the hundredth time today here's that song again it's gonna be stuck in your head all day here's that song again it will make you cray cray you love your kids enough to watch that tv show a bajillion times love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size show them you love them keep them safe visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat brought to you by the national highway traffic safety administration and the ad council is that a faucet running that's not a faucet that's a river rushing through the forest forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink what i can't hear you because of the vacuum that's not a vacuum that's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe i didn't know the trees were so amazing yep and the forest gives us shade trees to climb that's awesome let's go explore some more visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you to learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay? isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand including myself i didn't now i do uh, the impact of having a stroke my memory is shot when i woke up i couldn't speak lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke if you've stopped your treatment plan restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org it's a new life but i'm going to make it better uh, coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.
Beyond the Beltway, Chris Roebling in for Bruce Dumont. Uh, Ray Dillon just gave an explication of the Iranian situation. Uh, Judith, your view from uh, the, the, the standpoint of someone who's been to Israel many times and has your own personal experience in the region. Well, first of all, I, I really believe that Iran is an existential threat to the state of Israel. I think given, should they get a workable um, nuclear weapon and a delivery system, I think that there are people in the country who would want to use it. So I'm, I'm, and I don't know that there are people in the country that could stop that. Okay, so I, I do believe that they are an existential threat. Threat, and you know, at the same time, so you have the state of Israel, which is in a state of chaos. I think, based on everything I see from far away, I don't live in Israel, but. I read the reports about what's going on with the government. It looks to me like the government is going to fall apart again. I mean, this is a of all the places in the world that needs a stable, together country and a stable, together government. It, the first one on the list would be Israel, and they look like they're, the government's going to fall again. Uh, perhaps Netanyahu's going to come back. Uh, I think when you look at the political sphere there, I don't know who else would right. provide that kind right. of stability. I really don't. So it's a uh, fraught situation. Uh, I do note with great interest, uh, just this week there was a summit, uh, not a summit, but it was a very significant meeting of UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, and, and Israel. They announced a trade deal in which United Emir Arab Emirates um, announced it anticipates something like 300% increase in the uh, trade between Israel and UAE. Of course, there was no no official trade between Israel and UAE as recently as five years ago. So we're getting to a totally different situation, uh -huh. and that's a, a product of the Abraham Accords. Um, I well, guess I think, I think countries like the UAE decided they were more afraid of Iran than their hatred of Israel, and yes. they needed to do something, you know, to, to try to shore up that situation and their security situation, which makes sense. And, and I think that that's something yeah. that President Trump was able to point out to them and, and use to get the Abraham Accords. I, we also, there was, there was talk, there was a fair amount of talk this week about Saudi Arabia and about the... Uh, <laughs> Biden administration relationship with Saudi Arabia, which has been, a, I know, a topic in the region. Uh, and, you know, Saudi Arabia is a countervailing force to Iran um, across the Gulf. Um, Ray, are we have we gotten back on decent paper with Saudi, understanding that the Saudis view of human rights is very different from ours and more perhaps more in line with that of Iran. But uh What's, what's your view of how we're doing there? I think right now we're probably, you know, there's certainly a very strong confluence of interest in the region. As I said during my explication, um, I think Iran's focus now is on the near abroad and especially in the Gulf, and to a certain extent in Iraq. My concern quite frankly, is the stability of the House of Al-Sad. That, that is with, I think they've reached peak oil in, uh, I mean, they're starting to divest themselves of Ramco, which is interesting. And I'm wondering whether or not they can sustain a transition out of a 
an economy which is almost 100% focused on oil to something else. I don't know how they're going to achieve that. And I, uh, that to me, it could be a significant chaos in the kingdom could be a significant game changer in the region. And that's why I circle back again to say I think there's a confluence of interest in Washington, irrespective of what you may see in the press, uh, that it is in our interest to maintain stability in the kingdom, at least in the short to medium term. Whether that's sustainable in the long term, that's an open question because I don't know. I, I just don't know what's going to happen with, with oil. That, that's going to be the big question. Coming back to uh, domestic politics as, as we end up, we've just got a couple minutes left. You know, everybody is focused on November. Everyone is focused on will, will the Democrats get out of November with one House of Congress or will both Houses of Congress go over to the Republican side? Um, we've had these awful, awful shootings in Philadelphia and, and Tennessee, uh, Texas, um, and all through the land. Uh, and that has certainly given a lot of attention to the Democrats. Judith, do you see what, what's your current view? Nobody's going to hold you to this, but just sitting here in the early week of June, what's your view of how the two parties are doing with respect to the Houses of Congress in November? I think that um, the crime situation is is terribly out of control. You know, there's different kinds of shootings. There's the shooting you had in Uvalde, which, which we've talked about. And then there's what you had in Philadelphia last night, which is three kids walking down the street. Two of them start beating up on another one. The next thing you know, they're, they're shooting. You've got three people dead and 11 people killed, and that's one kind of mass shooting. Very different than what you had in Uvalde. That's going on everywhere in this country. It's going on in Chicago. It's going on in New York. People are tired of it. They can't go out at night. They can't go anywhere. They can't go out during the day. So that's got to stop, and I think that's going to inure to the benefit of Republicans. I really do. Ray Dillon. Um, I'll... I'll hit another third rail here. Um, you know what my religious beliefs are. Um, I think if Roe v. Wade falls, I think it's going to, that to me, I, I would like to see what the aftermath of that would be. You know, if my neighbors, you know who my neighbors are, um, if that comes out, I'm wondering whether or not Republicans will lose the suburbs you as a it. result. I don't know the answer that's, to that. I'm just saying I'm, I'm interested in what would happen if Roe v. Wade falls. Ray Dillon's first appearance on Beyond the Beltway. Judith Sherwin, another in her long line of appearances. Chris Roebling, happy to sit in for Bruce Dumont vacationing. WIND, thank you very much for the studio. Fritz Goldman, thank you for your strong hand on the tiller. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, until next Sunday night, Good night from Chicago. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.